Hallelujah. Amen. Good morning. Praise the Lord. Did you appreciate the worship team? Hallelujah. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Don't ever take that for granted. Hallelujah. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 8, verse 40. The book of Luke, chapter 8, verse 40. The title of my message is Prayers of Desperation. Prayers of Desperation. Hallelujah. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet. So I want you to picture this in your mind. A synagogue leader, very high-ranking guy, actually runs the local synagogue in Capernaum. And he's falling in the dirt at Jesus' feet. This is a Jewish man. Okay, and most of um, the Jews in that area were re- rejecting Jesus at that time. But he's falling at his feet in the dirt. He came and fell at Jesus' feet and he pleaded with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. That's a big crowd when you're almost being crushed. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. There's a lot going on at Jesus' feet you know, here at this story. She came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, Your daughter has died. He said, Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said, she is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anybody what had happened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord. And Lord, I just ask you today that you would help me, Holy Spirit. Speak your words. Speak the intents of everybody's heart. Uh, reveal secrets that only the Holy Spirit would know. Speak your word, Lord. Speak it through me. Hide me. Uh, Lord, let your word be seen, Lord God. And do mighty things in, in lives and in this house, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. Very fascinating story here. In fact, I talked about this story two weeks ago about the woman who... um when the crowds were pressing in, and they were pressing in so much, they were they were in fear that they'd be crushed. How I many you know that happens from time to time at concerts and places like that, where people actually die because they got crushed because the crowd is so big. So this is a massive crowd. And uh, I talked a few weeks ago about how in that giant crowd that nearly crushed him. He could sense that power was going out through one desperate woman who had a severe disease. And I preached a sermon about a year ago on that disease and how 
um, difficult her life was because of that disease um, that she had and how desperate she was. But today I want to focus on Jairus, because in this story, Jesus is highlighting two very desperate people. How many know that? These are desperate people and desperate prayers. And Jesus is trying to tell us something through uh, the desperate prayers. In fact, I was um, uh, talking last week and we were entering in um, through worship and we were sensing the Spirit of God uh, in the house and you could sense the joy of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in the house and I could just sense that God wasn't fully turned around. That God was just not fully, you know, doing all that he wanted to do. And he was saying, almost, you know, you almost pressed in. You almost received what I want you to have. And, and how many have ever felt like that? That, I mean, we're almost, we're just missing his presence and God wants to do so much more than what He's doing. And, and I know that longing's in my heart. And, and so I was asking God, I said, well, what is it, God? What is it? Um, what is it that we're missing? And uh, how many think we need to be honest? You know, we can um, not state the reality of the situation, or we can say, you know what? Uh, God wants to do so much more than what He's doing. And uh, we want to see God do that. And we talked about the last couple of weeks talking about a spirit-led church and talking about, um, you know, God has given us His full Holy Spirit and the problem's not with God. You know, the problem lies with us. God wants to do so much more, but He's we're not asking God, give us more of you. God's saying, no, give me more of you. God's saying, I want more of you. You can't get any more of me. You know, I'm giving you all that I have. I'm giving you the full power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, I'm giving you it in fullness. And the reason why we're not receiving it is not because he's not giving it. It's because we're not giving us. We're not giving fully us. And God wants us to examine our hearts and just he wants us to have prayers of desperation. And so God just started really, you know, speaking this message to me about desperation and desperation specifically in our prayer life. And it's a message of rebuke. And you say, man, I hate Chad when you, when you turn it on us and it's a message of rebuke. But you know what? It's a rebuke for me more than it is for anybody else. You know, and I, and, and, and if you really truly want the presence of God, you want that. You want to say to yourself, man, God, we want more. We want to see God do amazing things. And so God brought me to the scripture with Jairus. And I want you to begin to picture this story. Um, and I want you to picture the church through this story. Like I think Jesus is trying to tell us something, not only through the woman who got a hold of the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. How many know it's the power of the Holy Spirit that worked through Jesus that healed that woman that had the issue of blood? And how many know it's the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ that healed this girl who was dead? Everybody knew she was dead. And when she, when he first came to Jesus, she wasn't dead yet. She was still alive. But Jesus is just kind of taking his time. You know, he's healing another woman. He's stopping. I'm sure he's probably telling stories and, you know, just smiling and, you know, being Jesus. Right. And uh, meanwhile, Jairus is like, oh, you know what? You know, this is. Uh, uh, and then they almost get to his house and he almost made it. But she died. And um, so I want to I want to look at this man's mentality and what he's doing here, because Jesus is trying to tell us something about desperation. Two totally desperate prayers and two amazing answers to prayer. The first thing I want you to notice that I think is really important is where they're at. Okay, he is a synagogue leader in Capernaum. Okay, in Capernaum, if you look at a map, you see the Sea of Galilee is the northern part of Israel. And around the Sea of Galilee is, are these cities around the Sea of Galilee. And about 12 o'clock, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, in fact, the Sea of Galilee looks like a harp. 
And so it's the northern part of Israel. And you look about 12 o'clock, you see Capernaum. And then you see another city called Chorazin that's right there. And then you see another city called Bethsaida. Well, Peter and Andrew and Philip and several of them are from Bethsaida. A lot of these fishermen are there because they've grown up on the Sea of Galilee as fishermen, right? And Jesus lives to the west just a little bit, about nine o'clock and a few miles from Galilee. And so they're all kind of grow up in this area. And Jesus starts doing miraculous signs and wonders. And Jesus' central, in fact, there are several times in his ministry that his central location where he's performing miracles is actually Capernaum. You know, it's like right in the middle of where he's doing all these miracles, but the people still won't believe. In fact, uh, he in, in a few chapters later, in Luke chapter 10, he actually uh, scolds Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin because he says if the miracles that are done here were done in Tyre and Sidon, he said um, uh, they would repent. But you won't. You won't believe in me even though I'm doing more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere else. And you still won't believe. And he said, if the miracles that were done in Capernaum were done in Sodom, he said, they would still be here to this day, probably. That's pretty amazing things he's saying about Capernaum. And in Capernaum, uh, and understand synagogues a little bit, synagogues around the time of the Babylonian captivity, the temple was no more. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So around that period of time, you begin to see synagogues rise up and begin to replace the temple. So they're like little churches, basically. In fact, they would go in, they would sing some songs, uh, they would hear some teaching from the rabbis, and they were like several little churches. In fact, Jerusalem had over 500 synagogues. And all over the Sea of Galilee area, they had synagogues. And this man was the ruler of one of the synagogues. And in a lot of these synagogues, they were rejecting Jesus. And this guy is the head of the synagogue in Capernaum. In fact, that synagogue in Capernaum, they've actually dug that up and it's there. You can see the the ruins of that synagogue in Capernaum. And um, so Jesus comes to Capernaum. And all around these chapters, it's talking about how they have rejected the Messiah. He's doing, I mean, he's healing blind you know, he's, he's, he's doing all these miraculous signs and wonders that nobody has ever seen, but they're still rejecting him. Um, in fact, they're not accepting Jesus in the churches. Man. And, and I wonder sometimes, you say, well, man, they were bad people back then. They were awful people. We're so much better than them. But they found out they could have church without Jesus. They found out they, they rejected the power of Jesus Christ and they, and, and they basically were acknowledging that we can do it without Him. How many know that's what they were saying? We can do it without the Messiah, but everything in those synagogues was supposed to be focused around the Messiah that was going to come and do miracles. And He's here and we're rejecting Him. And somehow I want to ask myself right away in this story, are we receiving Him in our lives? Are we accepting him or are we saying, man, we can do it without him? And so we got to ask that question. In fact, every time we read the Bible, how many know it's not for your neighbor? It's not for everybody else in the world. It's not for the politicians. It's not for the sinners. It's right here. Me. So am I rejecting the presence of Jesus Christ in my life? And if I am, why? Why am I rejecting it? And... So Jesus is trying to teach a lesson, not only to Capernaum, but to us. And so here he is walking through the city, and the man who's the least likely to be jumping in the dirt and begging him to come to his house is there. And all these rejectors of Jesus' presence and his ministry are all looking in awe. you got to picture the scene here. He's in the dirt. And he's just crawling in the dirt and he's at Jesus' feet. You say, well, that's a, that's just a euphemism or that's just some, you know, term that they're saying technically he's at his feet, but he probably really, no, he was actually in the dirt on the ground. 
these beautiful, you know, leader of the synagogue garments. <laughs> you know, he probably had a real nice suit, you know, maybe, I don't know. He probably looked pretty nice. He probably had some designer clothes on, you know. He probably didn't look as good as I look this morning, but he probably had some designer clothes on. What, what do you think? They're painting a picture here. He's in the dirt begging. It says pleading. That means begging. And he's saying, please come to my house. And so what we have to realize here is all religious posturing is gone. And again, those Jewish people are awful people and they did, they rejected him, but I would never do it. Remember right here, how much religious pomp and circumstance do we still have? I'm just, I'm starting, I'm going, I'm just beginning to go in this conversation about are we desperate when we pray? Because he's desperate. And he's got a reason to be desperate because he begins to notice that his daughter is dying. Okay, his only daughter, she's 12 years old, and you can tell he really loves her, right? Jairus loves his daughter. But I want you to imagine for a second, again, let's put ourselves in this picture, and your only daughter that you really love, who's 12 years old, she's dying. All right, and you can see the signs setting in. Okay, he knows she's about to die. When you see that she dies while he's on his way to see Jesus, okay, that tells you how close to death she is. How many know you don't have to be a doctor to see somebody's dying? And they don't, they don't give the condition, you know, this is Luke, you know, he's a doctor, a physician, and he doesn't give the, um, condition, which usually Luke is pretty good about that. He doesn't give the condition, he just confirms that everybody knows she's about to die. Okay, and you begin to see the condition, and and um, how many know last moments in life are important? Like you don't want to miss the last moments of somebody you really love's life, right? The last place you want to not be is at the hospital, right? If she's in your house and she's dying in her room, and you know she's just about gone, what's the last thing you're going to be doing? driving all over in your high-class chariot. You know, he probably had his Cadillac of chariots, I imagine. And he's all over Capernaum just looking. And I'm trying to paint the picture here. All is lost. All hope is gone. There's no religious pomp and circumstance anymore. There's no respect in the eyes of the people anymore. There's only my daughter is dying and she's so close to death that I've actually left her and her mother in the bedroom and I'm all over Capernaum looking for my only hope. There's one hope and only one hope. And you say, well, man, he was the leader of a synagogue. You know, why didn't he just pull all of the synagogue leaders together and, you know, make her last moments wonderful? You know what I'm saying? Be there for her. Hear her last words, but no. In fact, his name Jairus means in Hebrew, the enlightened one. And boy, is he enlightened in this story. He recognizes something that all of Capernaum doesn't recognize. There's only one hope that mankind has. There's only one hope that we ultimately have. And if we can ever get to the point where we realize there's no other hope, but in that one person then maybe we can start seeing God answer prayers. Because there was nothing else in his mind. He was willing to leave his daughter's last moments because he only knew he knew he only had one hope left. And church, can I tell you something? We've got one hope left in our country. We've got one hope, and you say, Chad, you're just exaggerating. We have one hope left. Is everybody listening to me this morning? We've got one chance, one hope. America is dying like this little girl is dying, and we've got one hope. Please don't be fiddling with things right now. We've got one hope, and our prayers don't match. Our desperation doesn't match our situation. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? Our 
prayers do not match our situation. Our unity as people that love the Lord doesn't match our situation. Our desperation for the hour doesn't match what we're faced with. We are Jairus. We are the one that has the dying nation, the dying families, the dying siblings, the dying parents, the dying children. And we don't even recognize the reality of what's going on around us. It would be like this man just saying, you know what? Everybody's going to die. I'm just going to sit here and watch her die. I'm just going to sit here and watch her last moments slip away. And I'm not going to do anything about it when your hope is, is walking around the, the village. He's walking around the village, raising the dead, healing the sick, preaching the gospel. Nobody's ever seen anybody like this. We've been waiting for generations in this stinking synagogue. And he's there. And I'm just going to sit and watch my daughter die. And yet we do it. We do it. We're sitting here and watching our nation die. Die. And we just say, you know what? It was bound to happen. Nations only last so long. You know, we can only do so much. If it weren't for those wicked politicians... If it weren't for those wicked sinners, if it weren't for those drug addicts, if it weren't for all these things, but the Bible says it's us. Jesus was there and the religious people were rejecting the presence of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few statistics since the 60s, and I don't even know. I'm so tired of giving statistics because you don't have to be a doctor to see we're dying. You don't have to be a theologian to recognize we're dying as a nation. And I'll give these statistics and we'll say, preach it, brother. But no desperation. It says, since 1960, 560% increase in violent crime. By the way, these numbers are from 2018. That means something. Because it's really gotten much higher since 2018. 560% increase in violent crime, 400% increase in illegitimate births, quadrupling in divorces, tripling of children living in single-parent homes, 200% increase in teenage suicide. And I could go on a list that would blow your mind from the 60s. And like I said, you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be Gallup, Dr. Gallup. All you have to do is look in your bedroom And see, the little girl is dying. And all hope is gone. And what do we do? We look around. And if we were Jairus, here's what we would say. We would say, well, man, if only we could get the right politicians in office. Man, if we could only shut down those taverns. If we can only get rid of drug addiction, if we can only change the school system, And those are all things that we should be fighting like crazy to change. But ultimately, we've got to come to the conclusion like Jairus that there's only one hope left. We need the presence of Jesus Christ. And you say, Chad, we've got it. You know, we've got it. Just drive over to this next county and they have it. You know, or just drive over to this other state and they have it. Aren't you online? Don't you see revival is everywhere? I study revivals. I know what it takes to have revival. And I'm going to get into that in this message, but church, we need to get rid of the religion and we need to stop saying we got it. And we need to start getting desperate in our prayers and and we're shaking our head and saying, yeah, that's right, but we can't get people to show up for prayer meeting. We can't get people to get hungry to fast and to pray. We're so preoccupied with the world. And I just want you to picture this dad. He's saying, you know what? When I come back, she's probably going to be dead. He knew that. How many know he knew that? He knew she was probably going to be dead and he would never see her again. But in his mind, he was saying, if I can only find Jesus, 
And if he could only intervene, it's my only hope for my little girl to live. And, and I'm going to make sure my last moments, every moment that I have is dedicated to seeing her get well. And church, our mind has to be every moment I have left in this world, I am going to be seeking the presence of God. I'm going to pray for revival to the day I die. How many have been there for a long? I've been there for a long time. Nothing else but that revival. Nothing else but that revival. Nothing else but Jesus. We need your presence. We need you to shake this world. We need you to shake Christians. We need you, we need you to tear up all the religious pomp and circumstance. And you say, we don't have it. That's the Catholics. Can I tell you something, church? We don't have time to sit around and deal with your offense. We are in a situation where it's so desperate. How many of you know Jairus couldn't stop because he had a hangnail? He couldn't stop because he had a minor injury, okay? He was desperate because his daughter was dying. Church, can I tell you something? We can't keep stopping every time you're crying. Okay, every time you've got somebody that's offended you or somebody said something the wrong way or somebody didn't like what you did or somebody didn't think that your idea was good. Church, we got to get desperate, desperate, desperately seeking God and saying, God, we need you to intervene. We need you to intervene. We need you to intervene. And you say, well, Chad, your preaching is good enough. That'll do it. Study harder. Pray harder. Deliver the word a little better. We can play the music a little better. We can practice a little longer. We can get more marketing to make them come hear me preach. Right? And we all know that's not right. Those are good things. Those aren't bad things. I should study more. I should pray more. We should play better. We should market better. Those are good things. But it's not enough. It's not enough without the presence of God shaking everything. We have no hope. We can't do it without Him. We, we gotta be like Jairus in the dirt at the feet of Jesus begging, begging Him. Pomp and circumstance is gone. And I'm sorry if I've offended you. You know, really, I'm not. I'm actually not. I'm here to offend you. I'm here to offend your sensibilities because that's the problem in America is we've got a church that's just a bunch of babies. It's all about me, me, me. Chad, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't do this. Well, guess what? I'm going to continue not doing that because I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus, okay? Is that a shock? Some of you look startled. I thought you were Jesus. No, I'm not Jesus. I'm, I'm not. And so here's Jairus. And I don't even know why I have notes. This girl, her only hope is for life to be put back in her. Literally, the breath of life has to be, she's dead. There's nothing else that will, there's no human thing that can help her condition. And how do you, how many know that there's a thing called revival? And we said, man, I love revival. We would schedule those things all the time when we were little. We scheduled them. You know, he'd come into town and then revival would leave town. But you know, revival doesn't mean a scheduled meeting. Revival means life is being put back into something that's dead. And uh, man, if we don't, if we don't have a sense of reality real quick, if we can't walk out of our homes and say, "Man, something's dying in there," and you said, "Yeah, man, my family members are dying," no, you're dying. We're all dying. How many know that? We're all in a state of dying. And, and churches are dying. In fact, in 2018, the statistic was 4,000 churches 
every year are dying and gone. Now, how many think it was last couple of years? A whole lot of churches. And man, if we can't sense that we just don't need to reform, that we need life blown into us, we need life blown into the churches, we need life blown into this church, and you say, well, we're alive. Beware. Revelation says they said they were alive, but they were dead. And you say, man, how do I know we're alive? I want to know that the Holy Spirit is fresh in this place. I want to know more, that it's more than just man-made because we got a condition where only one thing will help, and that is the presence of Jesus Christ in this place. And we've got to be desperate for it. That's what these stories are telling, desperation for the presence of God. Amen? So Jairus comes along, and um, I began to look at what he did here. Jairus rolling around in the dirt at the feet of Jesus, and then he leaves, and you know he walks a little bit more, and then there's a woman in the dirt at the feet of Jesus. And I said, Lord, what are you trying to say here? What are you trying to say about desperation? And and uh, the Lord reminded me of a conversation that I had with the Lord when I was praying one day. And I said, Lord, what do you want? What do you want from us? What do you want from your people? And what brings revival? And 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 the Lord told me, you know, there's a difference between praise and worship. It's a difference between praise and worship. You know, we always say praise and worship. Why do we say praise and worship? Are they the same thing? Are they different? What's the distinction between the two? Well, praise is an interesting thing. You know, we'll actually give praise to people. And nobody will say anything about it. I'll preach a sermon and they'll say, Great sermon, man. That was awesome. That was incredible sermon. Such depth and such insight. Chad, you're amazing. I don't actually get that, but I just want to hear what it sounded like, you know. <laughs> but we can praise men, you know. We can say, oh man, my favorite athlete. How many know we praise people and we praise God? But we don't worship people. Some, suddenly it feels dark now, doesn't it? I worship you, Chad. That's dark. I worship that. That's dark. We don't do that. Right? We praise people's work, the things they do, but we don't worship anybody. So there's clearly a difference, right? So what is the difference? And that difference is a really big thing because there are lots of people that praise God. They praise Him and they're just joyful in His presence and it feels so good to just just love God, praise God. God, you're so great. God, you've created everything. God, the world is so beautiful. God, you've been so good to me. You've loved me. How many know praise is an incredible thing and it habits the praises of His people and it's very, very important. But worship is different. Worship is where you bow down your knee and you're in His presence and you're like, God, there is no other. No other person will I ever worship. No other thing will I ever look to. No other thing can change the situation I'm in. And worship is an altogether different thing. And God said, I seek worshipers. And God is looking for people. God, God loves the praises of His people. But God wants us to humiliate ourselves. And bow down to God and say, God, there is no other. There's no other hope. There's no other way. There's no other place. And here's the problem. We're worshiping false things. We're giving worship to things that aren't even God. And you said, well, man, I don't do that. If God's the only way and we're truly desperate and we truly recognize He's the only way, then why can't we find people in church seeking God and worshiping God the way that He's supposed to be worshipped? 
with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. God, I'm looking no other place. God, my eyes are focused on you. God, you're the only way. God, anywhere where people are worshiping you, where people are crying out to you, where people are saying, God, please help us, help us, help us, God. God, your only hope. God, we bow down. God, we're humble. God, I'm proud. Do you understand we're proud? That's the thing that keeps us from worshiping. We think we've got all kinds of other ways to solve the problem. We think there's all kinds of other solutions. We think our wisdom, we think our intellect, we think that we can program our way out of it. We think that we can do all these different things. And God says, until my people worship me, until my people realize I'm the only one, I'm the only one that can change this situation. Until America realizes it's, and until the Christian people, and you said, man, we got to make sure the world understands that, and we got to make sure the world worships him. And those drug addicts need to worship him, and the drunkards need to worship him, and the prostitutes need to worship him, and the sexually crazed culture needs to worship him, and, and all these people need to worship him, and God doesn't say that. God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And see, our problem is we have all kinds of different things that will help the situation. And that's pride. All kinds of different things to help the situation. And God's saying, no, worship me. There's only one way. Bow down and humble yourself and realize there's only one hope that we have. And the key to this story with Jairus is He bows down in the dirt. And church, until we as a church can bow down united and say, God, you're our only hope in this church. God, you're the only hope in this city. God, get this, you're the only hope in my my life. We don't always say that, do we? We're like, you know, things are going pretty good. I'll figure it out. And if all that fails, then I'll go to God. But God's saying, no, start in my presence and say, God, humble me, God, humble me, humble me. I need you. I need you. I need you, Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't have desperation in God's presence anymore. And boy, we need it. And you say, Chad, I'm glad you got it all figured out. God speaks these messages and I'm first. We've got to humble ourselves and seek the only hope that we have. And that's what Jairus is doing. And so Jesus, he uh, hears this request from Jairus. And and boy, he's in Capernaum. And that's an amazing request in Capernaum. And Jesus is like, all right, finally. I'm seeing what I'm looking for in Capernaum. And God wants to fulfill the request of a dad that is humble in the dirt. And he knows God's his only hope. And so Jesus is like, I'm going to his house. I'm gonna, he's gonna have my presence in his home. And so mom is waiting with the little girl. Dad's walking with Jesus and has hope now. But Jesus stops. Another humble person is there and Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood. And boy, they get ready to get to the house and what do they find? mourners and they're crying and they're weeping and they were like well man the hope that he had is not real hope at all and they're mourning and they're and they're saying oh you know let's put ourselves in the position again america's gone america is hopeless helpless defeated the enemy has won you're too late my home The enemy has won. It's over. Do you hear this defeatism that's coming in here? Jesus is walking with him. And then all these mourners are coming around. And and not only mourners, but how many know that they're laughers? They're laughing when he walks up. In fact, uh, you can see it in the story there. It says that they're laughing. And how many know when you begin to seek God, when you begin to seek the only hope that will help the situation, how many know you're going to see both? You're going to see the pessimism 
that says that's not the right hope. How many have ever sought God for revival, like with all of your heart, say, God, I'm going after it. And how many know you see both of these groups of people? And I think it's really interesting that Jesus gets to Jairus' house and he only allows certain people to be in the house. Like uh, laughers, you can stay out here. Mourners, you stay out here. Even the disciples, I don't know the other personalities. I know Peter's personality. You know, Peter believed he would heal. <laughs> I think he did. I mean, Peter, you know, John, the beloved, I think he knew that God was going to heal. And uh, James, you know, what a tender-hearted man. I think James knew that God was going to heal. And mom and dad absolutely knew Jesus was going to heal. Dad had been driving all over the countryside. And and so everybody else stay outside, Jesus said. Stay out here. And you come inside with me. And they were laughing because the girl was already dead. And who's going to heal a girl that's already dead? And who's going to bring back to life something that's already gone? And, and oh, it's already finished. And God can't do anything here. Hope is gone. And, and God brought them into the house and said, you know what? She's just sleeping. But everybody knew she was dead. And the girl immediately jumps up. She grabs her hand. She jumps up and begins to serve. And wants a meal. Wants a good meal. Serve her some food. She's hungry. You see what Jesus did in the house? The amazing thing that He did. And I think back and um, in fact, when I was reading this, do you notice the girl's 12 years old and the one that had the issue of blood was had it for 12 years? I thought, well, man, that's interesting. And I was thinking back to a person that I had read about. I told you I study revivals. And uh, there was a young man in uh, Wales, and he prayed for revival for 12 years. You say, well, why does God do that? I Shouldn't you just believe it and it happens? Or shouldn't you just get on the internet and find it? And, you know, I've studied revivals. And there is this humbling, this bowing down, worshiping God, getting in His presence, crying out for revival. There's something that God does in the people that pray for revival. And Evan Roberts was hungry for revival. In fact, he prayed for 12 years for revival. How many know, you, you see revival movements, people pray their whole life for revival, and then the moment comes that God finally answers the question. God shows up in the house. God shows up there. Evan Roberts only had a few young people, but they were sold out, and they were saying, God, we have to have your presence in Wales. We want to see you move. We want to see your presence in church. We've got to pull together those that have a heart to see revival and we've got to pursue it with all of our heart to the day we die because when we see it, God's presence will be in this house. In fact, you look at the story here. Let me, let me read what they say here. In 1904, the country of Wales experienced a revival that is still studied and, and discussed today. In a matter of weeks, the entire country was swept up in the movement of God. Church buildings were suddenly filled and meetings lasted from 10 in the morning until midnight. Oswald Smith says that in five weeks, 20,000 people join the churches across a small country town. What makes the revival, Welsh revival even more amazing that it began with Evan Roberts and a bunch of young people. Church, it's worth it. It's worth it to be like Jairus, lay at the feet of Jesus and cry out for him to come to your house. And you say, well, why doesn't God come to this house? Maybe it's because it's comprised of people in the house that need to get out of the house. We need people that are praying for, I'm not saying people should leave. I'm just saying we need more people that are in the house praying for revival and are sold out that Jesus is the only hope for our church. 
We need lots of people in the house that are bowing their knee and worshiping. You say, Chad, I love to praise. I do too. But I also love to bury my face in the carpet and just beg God. God, please, we need more than sermons. We need more than praise and worship. We need more than programs. We need more than plans. God, we need a sovereign move of God. Jesus, we need you in the house. And you say, well, what will happen when Jesus is in the house? Life will come into the dead. The church will be revived first. And then God will, when, when the church is revived, do you have any idea what happens to this community? When the church life is breathed into a church, have you any idea what God begins to do? And you say, well, what do we need to be doing? We need to be crying out. We have children. We have parents. We have aunts. We have uncles. We have coworkers. We have neighbors. You say, is it worth it to spend all my time praying for revival? It is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. We just have lost the reality that our nation is that dying girl. And if we don't pray, church, if we don't get in the presence of God as God's people and say, you know what? And and here's the thing. The nation is dying. And we're... We're not in the presence of God. We're thinking of all these other things we need to do to get the nation right. And God is saying, be like Jairus and just go after Jesus. Go after Jesus and you'll see things that you never thought you would ever see before. In fact, I've been preaching on a spirit-led church for two weeks and this is where it's at. It's getting in the presence of God, worshiping Him, bowing down at His feet and saying, God, I don't care what I have to go. You know, there is a, I hate to say this, because Jesus paid the price for all of our sins, but there is a uh, price to be paid for revival, and I, I don't know any other way to say it. I've seen, I've studied every revival movement, and there are people that are in love with God that recognize that if I don't pour myself out in the presence of God, we may never see revival in my lifetime. And church, I can't live with that. I've been in the middle of revivals and I've experienced it. And because I've experienced it, I can't live without it. I can't, that's not good enough to say that our children will never see revival like I've seen revival and I want to see it. Do you understand? We've got to see it. We've got to be desperate for it. We've got to cry out for revival. We've got to pray that God does something supernatural, sovereign through the Spirit of God in our presence. We've got to cry out. It's not good enough to say church is normal. We've got to have a move of God. and We've got to cry out for it. And In fact, I can remember reading about John Kilpatrick and, and those people that were praying for that revival and Pensacola, and they would just sit there night after night. He said he would take his keys out and he'd put them in the in the uh, altar there. And he said, you know what? I'm not leaving, Lord. I'm staying here in your presence. And he pleaded with God and pleaded and cried and wept. I remember the revival in Argentina. It said they cried what they what seemed like rivers of tears because they were so desperate. They said, God, revival has to come to Argentina. Revival has to come to Argentina and they cried rivers of tears and tears and tears and tears. And guess what? Revival came to Pensacola. Revival came to Argentina. You know, revival came to Wells. They cried and they cried for revival and they said, God, we're not leaving your presence. Bring revival. And God brought revival to Wells. How many know that? All these people cried out for revival and God brought it. God wants to do it as bad as we want it. But we've got to be in a position where God can bring His presence to our house. And you say, well, is this biblical? How many know that they tarried in Jerusalem and He said, don't leave till it comes? And you say, well, that's not that big of a deal until you look at how many weeks they were there. You mean to tell me if we locked ourselves in an upper room for that many weeks, God's Spirit would move? It wouldn't hurt. You say, well, no, I I prefer a one-hour prayer meeting every Tuesday. And that's great. That's because that's better than anything we could ever do. But you know what? God requires us to tarry until we be endued with power from on high. 
And if God's people were desperate, that's exactly what we would do. We would say, God, I don't want to leave. God, the world that I'm walking out to needs your presence, needs you. God, can you see God in heaven and hear his people saying, God, come. God, come. God, we need your presence. God, I need your presence in my life. I need your presence in my church. I need your presence in my family. And we just need more people to cry out to God and understand he is the solution to our problems. Let's look to no other. He's the solution to our problems. He's the solution to our nation. He's the solution to our broken politics. He's the solution to our broken families, our broken marriages, our broken home lives, our broken relationships. How many know He is the answer? He is the answer. We have nowhere else to look. Let's go and leave those dead things behind and say, Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, I need you more now than ever. My nation needs you. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. Desperation. I'm going to close here. If you'd stand to your feet. Hallelujah. And I apologize. Sometimes I get up here and I'm just all over the place and didn't follow my notes or anything. But church, we've got to get a hold of this. This is the Holy Spirit crying out to crying out to this church, you say, well, man, I hope some other church does it. No, let us be the one. And let's hope the other church. Why not us? That's right. Why not? Why not us? Why not now? You know, we don't want to go through this life and think that we could have, we could have prayed a little harder. We could have reached a little deeper. You know, and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be mean by saying that we cry too much, but we cry too much. Okay, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be angry with people. I'm just trying to say that Satan keeps on giving us those setbacks. We're, we're so busy trying to get along when we should be unified and going after God. And we hurt sometimes. I understand that. I'm not trying to be mean or harsh. But I'm just trying to say we need to be desperate for God. How many can remember times in your life where there was revival and we were desperate and we were seeking the presence of God and God was moving in our midst? And and can I tell you something? Our best days are ahead, not behind. Our best days are ahead. Hallelujah. But we got to do it together. You say, well, man, I'm going to do it alone. I'm going to be a hero. (laughs) No, we're going to do it together. We're going to go after God together and seek his presence. Hallelujah. Let's worship him. Worship him. Hallelujah.